Before we get started in this week's episode, I wanted to acknowledge that last week, uh, the film collecting film photography world lost a good friend. Um, Many of you may have known this already. Kurt Ingham was a friend to me personally. He was somebody that I know interacted with a lot of different people, a big time collector, sadly passed away. He was somebody that had a history with marksmen sharpshooting. He was an accomplished rifleman. He was in a, an LA punk band in the 1970s called Chainsaw, uh, several other bands. So he was a musician. He was a photographer. Him and his wife, Heather Harris, they adopted dogs. He's loved cars, motorcycles. I mean, this this guy just was was so cool. And the, in the past week hearing stories from different people who've interacted with him you know he he's he touched a lot of people and it's just a sad day to lose someone like Kurt I was fortunate enough to talk with him on a lot of occasions about uh, about cameras and and he bought actually a number of of cameras from me over the years but my favorite Kurt story he never he really didn't usually buy from me on eBay we would do it via emails and text messages and things but he uh he made me an offer on a, a camera on eBay. He did not know there was me, but I recognized his eBay's buyer name. So he made me an offer of, I don't even know what it was, a couple hundred bucks or something. I made him a counter offer of about $25 less. <laughs> it took about 24 hours for him to digest that. And uh, he accepted my offer. And then I I texted him and said, you realize who that was, don't you? And he thought it was the funniest thing. He said, that's the only time anyone ever offered me less than, than I had offered them for a camera. So it, it made me uh, it made me happy to do that. It was fun. I never had any direct interaction with Kurt, uh, but, you know, we were on quite a few collectors groups on, on Facebook together. And I always look forward to his contributions to those groups because his approach to collecting and his ability to share you know he was just genuinely excited about these cameras that he was finding and and that came through in what he would post and uh he he would occasionally post in response to things that i would have with oh yeah you've got those two well i've got the other three that fill out that whole collection you know and it wasn't just it wasn't showing off it was just a general like a, a total camera nerds perspective of don't these all look great together? And, yeah. uh, and, I, and I really appreciated that about his his approach to cameras and collecting and the way that he handled himself in the various uh, photo groups. He had a passion. For sure. And there's a lot of big time collectors that don't shoot their cameras, but that wasn't Kurt. He was very avid shooter. He bought film. He shot digitally. He shot, you know, for 35 millimeter medium format. He loved APS film for whatever reason. Uh, there, if there was a camera and it had a lens, Kurt wanted to try it out. And and I love that about him. So rest in peace, Kurt. Sorry to lose you. Uh, but we wanted to acknowledge his passing before this episode. Welcome to episode 51 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are back with another exciting episode. Joining us tonight from the George Eastman Museum is Mr. Todd Gustafson. Welcome, Todd. Well, thank you, Mike. Good to, good to be here. 
as always, our co-hosts, Paul Reibel, Theo Panagopoulos, and Anthony Rue. How's everybody doing? Good, Mike. Fantastic, Mike. All right, well, we're going to talk to Todd. We have another special guest I'll introduce in a little bit here, too, plus the usual slate of calling uh, people who want to chat with us. Todd is a, a great starting point working for the George East Museum. He has a, uh, he's an accomplished author with several books to his credit. He has a lot of knowledge of Kodak, Eastman Kodak, George Eastman, uh, you have it. So, um, so Todd, welcome to the show. You were on once before. You were on with uh, Robert Shanebrook. We talked about some stuff in the past. I think it was a Steve oh, Sasson Steve. episode. Yeah. So you were here when, when we were talking to him about his first uh, digital camera. We had Daniel Coons from um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, who had built that replica that you had helped him with. So that, that's a really cool story. If you're interested in that episode, you could hear Todd a little bit on that that show. But um, Todd, why don't you maybe just give us a short summary of what you do at the Georgie's Museum, what the museum is about and what people could expect if they wanted to visit. Okay. For, for Again, for those who don't know, we, we actually, the, the museum was uh, founded in 1947 as George Eastman House. It's in, in Mr. Eastman's house. Uh, now we're the George Eastman Museum, but we're established, uh, open to the public in 1949. It's the first really museum dedicated to, to the history of photography. So that would include, obviously, the technology things, which I'm curator of, and we have a, a large collection of, of photos, both documentary and and uh, snapshots and, and and art photography. Also a large uh, motion picture collection. I think we have the largest collection of nitrate film in the world, uh, which is not stored on site, by the way, that's stored off site. Uh, we have, <laughs> you know, fires, we worry about that. Hopefully with a good fire suppression system. That's right. Well, we keep, you know, we keep it cool, so to speak. Uh, and and, uh, and also we, you know, have a Dryden theater that's a, an art theater, which runs a, a, about four nights a week showing uh uh, art movies, uh, mostly projected, but uh, film, but we also do do, do digital these days because that's kind of unfortunately or fortunately, take your pick where things have gone. Uh, it's a 550 seat uh, theater and the, the museum is in Mr. Eastman's mansion. It is the largest house in Rochester, if you would. Uh, it's a big place. So, I mean, the, the, the gist of it, I'm the curator of the technology collection. I've been uh, at the museum for 35 years now. I've been curator of the collection since uh, 1989. I think if you get into the, the technical details of it, so I was hired to pack and move the collection uh, from the house to the to the what we what we used to call the new building. Now it's the 1989 building. So I've handled things more times than probably anybody else, and, and then some. Uh, the collections are roughly... Uh, about 20,000 pieces of photographic uh, technology, cameras, lenses, both still in motion picture and darkroom equipment. Uh, camera wise, we have about 10,000, I would say, still cameras. So it's and it's more than just Eastman wow. Kodak products, by the way. So it's just due to the way the collections have been amassed. Uh, Eastman Kodak Company uh, had uh, put something together in the, in the 1920s called the uh, Kodak Patent Museum. So what they did is they set aside all of their products, uh, cameras, and they also bought everybody else's. They basically were using it to to see if their patents had been infringed upon. And given the fact that film was the most profitable product made by any Fortune 500 company, they certainly had the resources to do this. So it was an incredible collection uh, and they donated it over the years, uh, the last gift being in 2009. So uh, most of these things are basically brand new in the box, you know, so it's, you know, it's the old camera store, brand new in the box with the warranty cards. So never been touched. So the, the boxes are in, in amazing condition. Uh, they also bought Eastman Kodak Company, also purchased uh, uh, several other collections that they have donated to us. So uh, the Gabriel Cromer collection, which was the one of, if not the earliest collection of, of French historic cameras 
uh, Mr. Cromer was intending his collection to be uh, formed uh, as, as a museum in France. Unfortunately, the French government was not interested in that. So Eastman Kodak Company purchased that in the late 30s uh, and originally put it on loan to us when the museum opened in 49. And then this was eventually turned into a, a gift in the 1970s. And there's been other similar uh, gifts like that. So it, it's pretty much soup to nuts, if you would, is it just not Kodak products. Uh, so we do have a, a Giroud Daguerreotype camera. There's uh, signed by Daguerre. That would be the first commercially uh, available camera from 18 August of 1839. Uh, the one we have is is the is the the fancier veneered bird's eye veneered wood. So it's it's one of the fancy ones. There's I think two others like it in the world. So it's really pretty amazing sort of thing. We also have uh, the camera from Samuel Bemis, which was purchased by Eastman Kodak Company in 1920. Uh, this is a Giroux-style camera, probably Giroux, purchased from Francois Garot, who was Daguerre's agent in the States. We have the sales receipt for it, so it was purchased on April 15th of 1840 for $76. Uh, they purchased it in the 1920s. It also came, by the way, with about a dozen images that were made with it. So he purchased the camera on the 15th. He didn't make his first picture until uh, April 19th. So now you got to wait four days when you buy a, a smartphone. You got to wait four days to use it just to honor Mr. Bemis. And newer things also, uh, the, the, the company did give us a complete run of all their, a sample of each of their digital cameras. So we have those. We have the uh, what is considered to be the oldest known digital single lens reflex camera, the first McGarvey camera from about 1987, 88. Uh, we, we have uh, the last camera that was made in Rochester. It was a Pro 14N uh, that was basically custom built for the museum after they had pulled the, ended the project. So uh, again, pretty much beginning to end, if you would, as, as far as Eastman Kodak Company goes. You had said, you know, you don't have just Kodak stuff. I mean, the Rochester area born a whole bunch of optical companies, Century, Grayflex, Bausch & Lomb, Wollensack. Do you have like uh, sections of the museum that are just about the, the whole industry in that area as a whole? Pretty much, yeah. We actually got a collection of lenses from Bausch & Lomb. We also got a lot of literature from them. We The, the technology collection has a fairly good size uh, published literature collection, so original sales catalogs, roughly 1880 through about 2000. Uh, Wallensack, not so much. I mean, we have most of their things, but that didn't necessarily come from them. But yeah, so Century, all those Century Graflex, those all actually became part of Eastman Kodak Company. Yeah. Uh, uh, Graflex donated their collection to the museum in the late 60s. Some of it had been on loan to us uh, in the early 60s, and that was turned into a gift. So it's, a, a, again, a pretty wide-ranging collection. Uh, the Graflex collection actually belonged to the company's public relations department. Uh, there was a gentleman named Tim Holden, Theron Holden, uh, who worked for Graflex, was managing that collection back in the time. When I first came to the museum, he was one of our volunteers, so he would give us his information on these things. So so along with the collections, we over the years, we also got information for from many of the people, such as Steve Sasson, who's worked on it. So it's, it's a it's a pretty impressive uh, array of of engineers and and uh, designers that have sort of come through the the uh, the museum over over my my tenure. So it's it's been just a uh, you know in some ways it's it's uh, I don't know I, it's like I pinch myself every morning. You know if, if if you're a camera nut like I've been ever since I was a kid, it's just you walk into this place and you go I, just, I this is just hard to believe. And, and have you always been at, at uh, the Eastman House or were you at Kodak Park? I never worked for Eastman Kodak Company, actually. Oh, I, okay. I, yeah, I, I, I went to art school. Uh, I studied fine art photography, graduated from college about 1980. Needless to say, there are lots of people looking for 
jobs there, which that didn't happen. So I, I end up actually uh, working as a photographer at Chautauqua Institution. And what had happened was the, the director of the museum, uh, the George Eastman House at the time, uh, a gentleman named Robert Mayer, uh, came to Chautauqua to look in the collection there to see if there's a particular portrait of Abraham Lincoln. That's That was how I made the connection. And uh, it was on a Saturday. I didn't know who this guy was. I was you know, anxious to go boating, but I was, for some strange reason, really nice to him. And we kind of kind of hit it off. And and uh, as as the construction of this new the new 89 building was going on, I, I, I kind of got, as I've, as I've since found out, I sort of got cherry picked for the job because I actually had camera knowledge. It was the 89 building. Is it that's behind? Yes, it's behind the house, and actually, most of it's underground. Uh, the, 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 they needed to build a, a building that could more properly take care of the collection. It was going to have to be taller than the house, and it's in a historic district, so we couldn't do that. So it went two floors under down. It's two floors underground. And, and what year was that done? Do you recall? Well, they started in in about '87. We moved in in in, in January of '89, and most of okay. that was actually funded by. I was a stockhouse dealer. The Kodak would run, Eastman Kodak would run uh, professional edge seminars once a year for stockhouse dealers. And part of the deal was that one evening we had dinner at the Eastman house in the music room. Right, right. And, and after dinner, we were all pretty well liquored up and we had, uh, we could go anywhere in the building we wanted to, to look at the, the uh, cameras and uh, and the artwork. And it was terrific. I mean, the if you've if you've never been to, to Rochester, New York, it's worth going just to go to the museum because the building is so interesting and uh, there's so much to see in that building and the history of the building. Could you, you know the story about the music room? Yeah. So basically uh, what, 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 uh, uh, what he's alluding to here is when when the house was built, uh, the, the house actually sort of based around or built around an Aeolian organ. Uh, there, there are pipes in the North and, and well, now in the North Bay, but also the South Bay. Mr. Eastman wasn't exactly happy with the acoustics. So what they did is they, they literally cut the house in half and moved it back nine feet. It actually cost more to do that than to build a house. This was to improve the acoustics. This is this is uh, the, the, the ultimate uh, stereo room, if you would. And it's 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 really impressive. I don't know what see not if, if depending on the last time you were there, uh, the the North Oregon Bay had actually was destroyed by a fire back wow. in the in the in the middle forties before the museum was opened, so it was gone. So in in the oh, about early two thousands, Richard Ziff, a gentleman from California, donated his Aeolian organ to the house, and it was it was modified to fit in the other bay. So now we have both bays. So you really do have the surround sound that was there in, in Eastman's time. It's incredibly impressive. There's nothing else like this in a house and probably in the world. Well, that room was actually Mr. Eastman's dining room. Right. And he liked to have music playing while he ate. So he had an organist uh, on, on hand, on staff, so that he could he could have music. And of course, that led to the Eastman Orchestra, East, Eastman Symphony. Eastman. Yeah, the RPO, Rochester Philharmonic, and, yeah. and, and the building that it's uh, how that they perform in, which is now the Kodak Hall. So yeah. And if he didn't like it, by the way, he'd do this and they'd play something else. So, so we're getting into a little bit about what I wanted to kind of ask about too, is from the perspective of somebody who only knows Kodak as the maker of Kodak Gold, right? In cheap Instamatic cameras from the 70s. Obviously, they have a long and rich history. Uh, George Eastman got his start making dry plates, I believe, in his mother's kitchen. That's how the, the formation of the Eastman Dry Plate Company got started. Eventually, he moved on to roll film, the original Kodak camera from 1888. 
the questions I have for you, maybe you could give a summary of, you know, how Joe Eastman got started, maybe what were some of his accomplishments as a philanthropist. In the last episode, number 50, we spent some time talking about Polaroid and we covered Dr. Edwin Land and we referred to him as kind of like the Steve Jobs of the photo industry then because he was a visionary and he, you know, was very, very important to instant photography. But George Eastman was more than just in photography. I mean, he certainly had a huge mark on it. He did a lot of cool things too. So could you maybe, you know, give kind of a summary of like how he got started and what some of his major accomplishments were in Rochester? Sure. So, so basically the, the, the George Eastman story is, 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 is pretty fascinating. I and mean, his, his father ran a, a business school, a school out of Rochester. He was actually born in, in Waterville, New York, which is about, oh, 60 miles from here or so. And his, his father died when he was about seven years old. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a rags to riches story, but not exactly. I mean, they, 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 but after his father died, they kind of found out that they weren't as well off as they thought they were. So they, his mother moved to Rochester and they actually, she opened up a boarding house. Uh, and uh, when Mr. Eastman was about in seventh or eighth grade, he decided that uh, he would quit school and, and go to work to help support his mother. She didn't. That wasn't. That was his idea, not hers. Uh, so he was basically a messenger for an insurance company. He ended up working uh, at Rochester Savings uh, Savings Bank as as a they would say as a clerk. Basically, he was a bank teller. So in the in the early years there. Uh, he was interested in buying land, like a lot of his clients were doing, a land rush in Santa Domingo. So to do that, to get the loan, you had to document the, the property. And so you'd either would have to hire somebody to go do it for you, whether it's a painter or a photographer, because obviously photography was sort of in the wet plate here at this time. This is the, the, the roughly 1870s, early 1870s. So he decided he would buy a wet plate uh, kit, and we actually have the receipt for this kit from a local dealer, and about, for about twenty dollars, he he bought the kit. Uh, was not successful at at making any images at all, so he took lessons from a local photographer to learn the process, and decided that that this is something. So he never did buy the land in Santa Domingo, but so he started reading about gelatin dry plates in some British journals. And started experimenting as 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 you're told in in his mother's kitchen. So basically, he would eventually patent a machine that would automatically coat gelatin dry plates. Uh, we have on display at the museum the only known box of Eastman's dry plates that are in the Anthony label box. So they are sold by Anthony out of New York. Uh, so that was the beginning of the business. One of the boarders at Mr. at his mother's boarding house was Henry Strong. Now, he was living there because his house was being built. And uh, so he met Mr. Met George Eastman, or you know, I, I I hesitate to call him Mr. Young George, but you know, young Mr. Eastman. And he was impressed with him. He thought that, that he had a lot of energy, that he had a lot of potential. So eventually, uh, Eastman, when the company was formed, Eastman Dry Plate, uh, Eastman invested one hundred dollars, and and Strong did one thousand dollars. That's sort of the beginning of it. Uh, it it obviously grew, and uh, Eastman realized that Dry Plates was really not the, the end-all, be-all. So he, he started investigating making film, if you would. And he he made something called Eastman's American Film. So this is actually, we call it film. It's actually a, a, a flexible material with paper. And the sensitized material was on this paper. You had to actually develop it and float it off the paper and put it on glass, kind of like a decal, if you would. Uh, this was intended for professional photographers, and they had a complete system that went with it. So he had an Eastman's Walker roll holder that could be attached to other existing cameras. 
and eventually they would make have cameras of their own made to go at by by uh, by Frank Brownell. But but the, the the gist of it is it didn't catch on. It, it was really not going any place to speak of. Uh, it, it was kind of fussy to process, I guess. And trying to convince a professional photographer to try something new was must well. It was a challenge when I was working in the camera store. It probably was no different than people want to use what they know. Uh, which is sort of human nature. The the gist of it is, instead of giving up, he he decides to create a camera uh, that would be used for the amateur market that was newly emerging with dry plates. And the real thing that, that the, the real innovation was, he decided because processing the film was a little bit on the fussy side, he said, "Well, we'll do that for you." So he basically uh, came up with the, with the name, the Kodak. Uh, which is a name that he came up with with his mother playing a game called Anagrams. Uh, he liked the letter K. Her maiden name was Kilborn, as I mentioned in the intro. Uh, he liked that letter, and it's basically he wanted to have a, a word that uh, could be used in multiple languages because he, he wanted to sell worldwide, and that's where, where the, the Kodak name came from. There's other stories out there. This is the one, the one from Mr. Eastman. Uh, explaining that he was looking for a word that could be trademarked in England, which was the most complicated place to do that. So uh, he also eventually uh, would write the advertising slogan, you press the button, we do the rest. Basically, the other thing that they did was the way they marketed the camera. It was, it was marketed in common non-photographic publications. So people who read just general magazines would see ads for the camera. It was expensive. It cost $25, as you all probably know, and film and processing for it was an additional uh, $10. Uh, actually, about 10-ish years ago, I, I, I actually purchased a roll of Eastman's American film for the Kodak camera on eBay. Uh, so it's, I believe it's the only known box of that. And, and a week later, we actually bought the, the next year's the nitrate film. So the, the, the camera was, was all, all for the first time period it was considered successful. They made about a little over a little over 5100. They made an improvement to the shutter mechanism, replacing the barrel shutter with kind of a, a sector shutter type. Uh, and they sold about 10,000 of those. So real quick, a lot of those early Eastman Kodak cameras externally look similar, but only the original 1888 had that barrel shutter you were talking about. Right. The box looks about the same. The, the first 150 or so do not have the little V sight line on the top. Uh, we, we have number six and number 81. That does not have the sight lines. The next one we have in, in, in the hierarchy is 313, and that one does. Uh, so it's it's somewhere after 150, I believe, that change was made. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a it was a fairly good seller. Uh, the, the new and improved ones, the serial numbers are slightly over, like I said, slightly over 51 something 5190 something like that we have the production order books on these things so we do have the have the records on those that the 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 problem with any of these kind of records is you're assuming that the humans who wrote it down were actually being accurate uh i don't know if, if you're if your retina people are on i'm sure you've all bumped into david gents who's done all sorts of uh research on this sort of thing trying to trying to rebuild production orders and you find out how how odd things how manufacturing can be when you get into this sort of stuff so but yeah it, it, that's kind of where it goes and then there's the number two which is you know same camera a little bit bigger because if you want a bigger picture you had to have a bigger camera enlarging was possible they just generally didn't do it uh and they go up to the the, the, the large one is the number four in in the in the box style cameras there's also number five folding kodak which is a, a kind of a they sometimes they call it the satchel camera and, and again we have examples of all of those and actually in some cases we have the first one from production in the case of the uh the number three junior we have serial number one on that uh the earliest kodak is is serial number six 
they they actually made a pre-production run of six cameras in November of 1887. This would have been made by Frank Brownell, whose uh, workshop just basically happened to be across the street from uh, Mr. Eastman's office. That's all that. Todd, those were those were plate cameras, right? No, no, these are roll film cameras. They're roll film cameras. They're roll film cameras, yeah. Okay, and and what was the nomenclature on the film size? Well, it's film for the Kodak. Was there a nomenclature for the? There Kodak? wasn't. It's it just uh, the end of the box has the letter K on it, and and yeah, it just says film for the Kodak on it. When someone would shoot a roll of film, of course, they would send the camera to Eastman Kodak for processing. Yes. And then they would get an, a fresh roll of film loaded into the camera. Did they get back the same camera they they sent? Yes. Yes. So, logistically, that must have been very interesting. Would have been complicated. From one uh, one of the uh, the, the uh, people I had the pleasure to, to work with over the years was Mr. David Gibson. He was uh, the last curator of Kodak's Patent Museum. Uh, after he retired in the uh, if he retired about 1889, he would come in and, and uh, volunteer for me a, f a few days a week and help me with with answering the, the large number of questions that we get and, uh, and and also basically school me on a lot of this information because. The, 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 that's where the, the data came with came from is was records they had and yeah just just a, a amazing amount of things but th this was a, a a box camera roughly you know roughly this big fairly small shipping it to and from is obviously not the best way to keep people taking pictures so obviously coming up with a way to to daylight load uh would be the next step that happened in accord that something happened called the daylight kodak so uh and and the daylight kodak was sort of like a redesigned version of of, of the original model uh, and they also had a, a less expensive one called the Ordinary Kodak that doesn't have a leather covering on it, which is actually kind of the rare one. And in fact, on eBay, within the last week or so, I, I saw a Daylight Kodak that had a really, really bad leather covering on it. So what, what happened is the Ordinary was not selling very well. So they took them back in and they leathered them. And all the leather that they put on those didn't work well with whatever finish was on it. So they all kind of look like that. So if you look at the serial number... Even though it's a leather-covered camera and it says daylight on it, it would have started out as an ordinary. You didn't have to send it back if you didn't want to. They did sell the film, right? Yeah, and the, and the instruction book did include processing how to do it. And, right. and again, most people didn't do that. We have in, in the, the photo collection across the hall from me, they do have just a few examples of uh, original Kodak negatives that are still mounted on glass because you had to take the image off the paper and put it on the glass. So there's just a few of those, not very many of them. I actually did a talk uh, for a university uh, up in Maine uh, a few years ago, kind of about something along the lines of this, where they it looked to me like they had processed them themselves. But it, there's the only real way to know is if, if if whoever did this actually kept the day book, so you had their notes, so you'd know, and, and assuming that they you know, kept accurate notes. Moving forward, you know, into the 20th century, as Eastman Kodak started to establish itself, George Eastman did things outside of Kodak too. Like, didn't he establish like the 40-hour work week or, you know, um, or wasn't it company health insurance too? He was kind of a pioneer on in the in the early days. I I think Eastman was not thrilled with workers, but I, I think at some point he realized that he needed needed them, and he realized that if you treat them well, they they actually because you know these these people were you know doing a fairly tedious difficult job, so they they generally overpaid. Uh, no union. His goal was to keep the union out, but there was no reason to have a union because they did everything that they 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 paid well. Uh, usually overpaid, in fact, and and they did provide benefits 
Uh, Eastman Savings and Loans was established so that the, the workers could actually buy houses uh, for it. Actually, I, I bought my house through Eastman Savings and Loans. So, so it, it's it's all these sort of uh, they would actually have a a, uh, a benefit day when when they would get their 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 stock dividend. There was a number of automobile dealerships that was established up along where where the Kodak offices were because basically you get your check and you walk across the street and buy a car. That was what happened. But yeah, largely any of the the uh, uh, cultural things that are in Rochester is here because of George Eastman. It's you know Rochester is not a very big city, relatively speaking. Uh, the, the the population of the city is about two fifty two hundred fifty thousand. The the area I would say uh, the suburbs probably make it a, around a million or so. But the 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 gist of it is there's all these things here to do. So we you know University of Rochester largely because of George Eastman. Uh, the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, which used to be a mechanic institute, that was largely George Eastman. Uh, the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, George Eastman. He, uh, the dental dispensaries all around the world, actually, George Eastman. He apparently had bad teeth when he was a kid, so he would basically give, uh, at least in Rochester and probably other places around the world, free dental care to, to uh, school kids. So lot, lots of things like that. His philanthropic stuff goes worldwide. A lot of it was actually uh, under other name of Mr. Smith. So it was anonymous. So really quite, uh, quite amazing when you get into it. In the 20s and 40, 20s, 30s, 40s, a large, po- a large percentage of the population of Rochester worked for Eastman Kodak. 1920s, yes. It was a company town. I mean, it was... It was either Kodak or Xerox, basically. The, the, it, was a, it was basically a company town. Because it was so dependent on on uh... especially in those days, they basically said you either work for Kodak or Xerox, or you work to feed people who work for Kodak or Xerox. <laughs> I mean, if 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 you go back in, into this into Rochester history, this is called the Rochester's the Flower City. It was originally from flour milling. There's the waterfalls and the Genesee River, so that was for grinding the flour mills. And then Civil War era, the majority of the wheat actually came from this part of New York State, throughout the country, believe it or not. Uh, so there was that end of it, and eventually it would would uh, change into be a, uh, a kind of a gardening town. Uh, the, the part of the city that I live in has uh, a large island park, and that's left land that's left over from uh, a company that grew plants, flowers. So that was, that's the flower city with a W on it. So that's sort of where that comes from. Paul, if I could ask a question about like the evolution of the uh, the Kodak camera lines. You know, it's at some point in the was it probably the early twenties. It starts to move away from you press the button and we do the rest and, and the simple box cameras and into the different folding cameras. Was there a, was there like a, a conscious decision by Kodak to recognize that photography was a growing trend and that they, they needed a more sophisticated product line or, uh, you know, because then they also, I mean, with the introduction of things like the Bo Brownies and bringing in uh, Teague to do the, the number one gift camera, you know, they start moving into high design as well. Yeah, so basically what really the, this is an evolution of one very specific product. And, and I, I think if if you look at the Kodak, uh, the film at the time would have had a, I'll, I'll be an old guy, say ASA of around two. So, I, and it was an F9 lens, or pardon me, an F11 lens uh, with a shutter speed of about a 20th of a second. So that means you're going to, 
you know, be able to take a picture probably between, I don't know, 10 and three, four o'clock in the afternoon. So the goal was once he once he figured out that the money was not in the cameras, that it was in the film, they wanted to increase your picture taking opportunities. And to do that was to get get you better results. So they needed to improve the cameras, the lenses and the film. So they did this. And really, the the the, the big thing that happens in here that really nobody ever talks about was the fact that they established the corporate research labs in Rochester 1912, one of, if not the first in the country, to basically look at very specific things. I mean, they, they, they knew that certain salts of silver when exposed to light would turn dark. What they needed to do was to how to very precisely control this and what other little chemicals can we add to it? to improve this process. I mean, it was largely established to do two things. They had some issues uh, in the early years with making dry plates where they had some plates that failed uh, and Eastman replaced them. And needless to say, because of Henry Strong's money, they were allowed and they were able to do that. That probably would have put them out of business. So some of it really is, is again, is Mr. Eastman's vision for the future. And the future was gonna be color photography. So uh, most of the credit goes to Manis and Godofsky on this. Uh, but before that, and during Eastman's lifetime, they had uh, Eastman color film, which was a, a motion picture film, two color, coated color film. Uh, they had a big party at the, at the house, at the Eastman's, Mr. Eastman's house with Thomas Edison in 1928. This was shot through basically filters and they had uh, little, little tiny lenses, they call lenticular uh, Kodachrome. And it, it, it would give a color like uh, film, but this this didn't happen during his lifetime. But he did put set it the, the the steps to build this. So in in the twenties, they would hire uh, Manis and Godofsky uh, to work on this outside of Kodak's uh, park area, the, the the infamous out of the box thinking, if you would. So they they brought a, a sort of a different way to look at it. As far as the product that actually went into production, the the research labs had to take what they had and turn it into something that you could turn into a a, a, a a product that you would make in mass, if you would, uh, and becomes Kodachrome. Uh, and Kodachrome is the first multi-layered film. Uh, sometimes I call it the first modern film. That's a little misleading because these layers, it was a six layer black and white film. There's filtering layers. So there's basically a cyan, yellow, magenta with filters between. Each one of these was a separate coating, which is really kind of hard to believe when you get into it. Also, what happened, if you look at the earliest Kodachromes from, from roughly 35 to about 38, most of those, the colors are gone. I have just a couple samples that I've seen that still have a little bit of color in it. They actually had to redesign it. I was having a conversation with, with Bob Shanebrook about this. He he thinks that they they left Madison Godofsky, who were two musicians. Uh, it was he, he thinks it was largely a, a PR move to, to give them all the credit, when in reality it was uh, Kodak engineer Bunny Hansen who who really redesigned all this stuff. He he gets usually credit for for Kodak color film, but we also are pretty sure that he's the one who basically made Kodachrome what it what it ended up becoming. And I'm not trying to belittle Madison and Godofsky, but there's a difference between making something in a small lab and continuous row coding, which is to me is just Hard to hard to explain. I mean, if, if you get into how film is made and still made on the one system, one line that they're running, it's Kodak uses a what they call a a falling curtain coder, a curtain coder. So the the the, the liquid which contains roughly twenty up to twenty four layers, eighteen layers of sensitized materials, another six layers of filtering materials. These all are in a liquid. It, it falls down and lands on the film. When you think about it, it's just just from a 
odd way of looking at it. If you pour water on plastic, it doesn't stay there. It runs off. So they're pouring this stuff down. It has to end up in these very specific layer orders. And the layer thicknesses is less than a, than a human hair. And it does. And it stays there. And, and to the point where the quality is, is the same five years ago from what it is now and five years later. It's just it's incredible. When, when you get into it and this is running it in the feet per second I've, I've seen the thing it just it just boggles the mind what it does you know this is what they've been doing for years and and over the years they they continuously improve the speed of the film that's one thing that really gets lost especially with younger people who don't understand that that film for the kodak was you know film speed of somewhere in the vicinity of two in the old days and not too long ago until he retired we had a gentleman named mark osterman who did historic process workshops for us and he has a good coat film there he could make film anywhere from roughly asa5 up to 20. when you get up to, up the faster it goes the more you throw away so most of what they use was about five and they would put it on codex s star base so just a single coat uh when you get into it it was would be uh, full of dust really crappy looking because it was not in a clean environment they would slit it to 35 and perfect and actually shoot it in a in a uh, imo type camera but we i i was always after make me some i want to put it through my leica but it's, it would be you know from a from a technical standpoint on the one hand be really interesting artsy if you would but it probably be pretty awful i think would be the best way to explain it so th th there's this this continuous improvement in all of the all of the aspects whether it's the cameras uh the film the lenses and, and all of this comes through uh basically kodak's labs if you would the the the, the camera that we we're i spent a little bit of time looking at today was a, a super 620 which is the first autofocus pardon me autofocus auto exposure camera 19 38. The, uh, a topic popped up the other day. How many were made? And, and the McCune guide says they made 719. Uh, I've been working with Dave Jentz. He, he is Mr. Serial Number Guy. And we've, we've, we've dug up a uh, serial number range that it looks like it's more around 1,000 is what we think it is. But again, I can't prove this because there are no records. There was a joke that Kodak made 500, but 700 of them were returned. Yeah. Um, so I don't think they had very, very good records, but the, the most rec recurring number that I hear is somewhere below 800. Yeah, I, I would say probably closer to a thousand from, from today. But I mean, the, the gist of it is automatic exposure. Uh, the, the serial number is, is stamped on the, the metal bar on the inside of the camera. It's kind of hard to see. It's, it's probably, well, it's, it's the earliest one that I know of that I've seen is 1804 that we have. Uh, Dave says that goes up to like 2650 or something like that. Yeah, this one is 2304. There we go. See, almost almost sounds like I know what I'm talking about, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> see, I always thought the serial number was one in the lens because the lens is the serial well, number. Well, see, the le that's the lens serial number. And that th those numbers are really kooky because in looking at the ones today, the, the one with the highest lens serial number had the lowest camera number on it so just there yeah. again these these were built in in a, a yeah. kind of a, a, a production line if you would you got a pile of parts you're putting this pile on that pile so they weren't really keeping track of the numbers so the lenses are usually in the in the thousand or so they they they, they seem to start somewhere around 200 and seem to go i would roughly say to, to like 1200 something like that um todd uh Obviously, you know, um, George Eastman's view was to go worldwide. And we talked about the early 20s and so on. From what I can tell is Kodak was already expanding across the world at that point as well. I've got a camera over my shoulder here, which is a Baker and Rouse, um, which was uh, effectively merged into Kodak Australasia 
uh, by the 1920s, that, that camera itself was built about 1900. Was there an actual drive to go worldwide that early on in the company to to expand and take over other companies or was it organic growth? Eastman's goal from the very beginning was to manufacture worldwide. They actually started doing dry plates in England in the in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Basically, they found out when you shipped them across the pond uh, that added dates to them so they would expire. So they actually started making uh, coating plates in England fairly early on. As far as in, uh, exporting to the to the UK, uh, basically they opened Kodak Canada in Toronto. And this, again, this this is the other interesting about manufacturing is, is having to do with how do we get around import duties. So if you basically set up a, a, a plant in a city, uh, depending on how much labor they put into it, how much of the assembly it has, and it's, it varies from country to country, how much actually has to happen. So you send some of the parts to, to Toronto, they do whatever finishing to it they want, or, or eventually start making their own cameras, and then that goes to, to the rest of the UK duty-free. Uh, if you look at the retinas, there were some that were shipped uh, bodies to Paris. They put ingenue lenses on them, and they were able to sell them in, in Paris duty-free. So it's 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 a really interesting thing. Uh, nothing nothing really new. I mean, it still goes on today. When you look at open the door of your car, it says assembled in North America, whatever that means. So it's the parts go back and forth, back and forth. You're, you're basically chasing the cheap, cheapest labor, believe it or not. That's what it's all about. So. Uh, and Eastman was was doing this early on, no doubt about it. And that included the services, like you you take the picture and we'll process it for you, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and and, and uh, there, there's a map in. Uh, we have a sitting room of the museum of, of on the second floor of the house, and other than it's, you can sit on a furniture that was not. <laughs> it's the only place in the, in the in the house where you can sit down. But there's a map in there that has little pins on a map showing you where all the manufacturing places are, and it's all around the world. So basically. You know, a lot of it is U.S., lots of different branches in different states, depending on where it's going to go, but also all around the world. And it had to do with, again, it's it's cheaper to make it there than it is to to make it here and ship it. So shipping is always part of the part of the part of the cost. And, and, and it's all about it's really all about the profit of film, believe it or not. And it's 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 the, the and this is something I you know, sort of had trouble getting my hands around until I saw it. Uh, making film is incredibly complicated. I, I, I believe it's the most complicated consumer product that's ever been made. Some people bring up computers. They said, well, you haven't seen this before. But the, the gist of it is once you've got that going, and, and that little yellow box, by the way, that, that really represents hundreds of billions of dollars of research and investment. What gets, because you're making so much of it, what gets to be really complicated and expensive is actually cutting it to size and and, and putting it on the on the various uh, spools that it's going to go into and putting it in the boxes. It actually costs more to box it up than it does to make it. Once you've got the line going, you've, again, I'm, I'm ignoring the chemistry and the research involved in it, but just the actual what happened. So uh, the, the uh, current version of Eastman Kodak Company was doing actually uh, factory tours uh, before COVID. I don't think they're doing that now. In those days, they were only running the film line uh, one or two days a week. And it's it's something that doesn't work well that way. It was really designed to run 24-7, which is what they're doing now. So I was actually on the last tour before they closed it down before COVID. So and it was interesting that you could actually see how this thing works. And it was just, uh, you know, I know a little bit about machining because of my, my, before I came here, I also spent a little bit of time, for better or worse, working in a little tool and die shop. So I've made things. Uh, and it just it just again, it's it's mind boggling to to get your hands around how 
complicated this stuff goes. I mean, dumping, like I said, 24 layers on something that's moving that fast and actually getting it all in the right place is just unbelievable to me. So was that, was the coding facility in Kodak Park? Yes. And it's still open? It's, it's still, still running. Yeah. Yeah. They had, they, they used to have in, in, in the, in the big days in, in Rochester, they had 10 running coding machines. Now they're just running one. And they also had them in other places around the country and actually places around the world, by the way. Were they still doing any paper coding? No, paper's all gone, unfortunately. So um, while we were talking, we were joined um, by two other people. Um, one of them, Richard Diver. Uh, I noticed you were nodding a couple of times while Todd was talking. Did you have any questions for him? It's It sounds like it's not fair to say George Eastman was holding the company back in any way. I mean, by the time the 30s come by, he's, you know, he's an old guy. And but it sounds like he's entrepreneurial, he's expansionist, like he's really wanting to push the company. But is it a coincidence that a lot of cool cameras show up after he dies, like the the 620 that Mike showed, you know, the 35 millimeters, just like the late 30s, early 40s. Is that is that just sort of the momentum that he generated? Was it just a coincidence that all this stuff showed up after he died? No, it, it's it's a culmination of years and years of research, research and development. It's all R&D. Basically, what I usually attribute to uh, maybe like the last thing of, of George Eastman, and this is has to do with the 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 uh, the anniversary, the Kodak anniversary camera, the 50th anniversary. Uh, in, in in 1930, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the company, they gave 500,000 basically uh, uh, Brownie Hawkeye cameras uh, to 12 year old children. So and and 50,000 in Canada. So they just basically made you know all you had to do was show up with your parent or garden guardian, say I'm 12 years old, sign a paper, so you're not going to get more than one. It was all done basically given from in the month of May, from what I can tell. 500,000. That's 500,000 customers for life. So and and to, uh, I can't say to this day, but it it hasn't been that long since I've had somebody who who's contact me and say, my, you know, I got this camera when I was 12 years old and, and, you know, a loyal customer for life because of it. So as far as the R and D goes, uh, he certainly would not have gotten in the way of anything. He was, he definitely had, it was a, was kind of a visionary. The, the, the better the cameras worked, the more film you're going to buy. And, and I mean, the, the, the goal was always to buy, how can we get them to buy one more roll of film? I mean, it's, 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 it's that simple. If, if you look at the business model that's attached to your smartphone, right? This is more of a utility bill. You pay you you pay for this whether you use it or not. He never got filmed to that category. If he could have, I'm sure he would have jumped on that in a minute. And I've used that comparison before that, you know, Kodak being a film first company and you see similar things with Agfa, with Fuji, you know, they certainly made good cameras too, but they were a film first company. And a lot of the projects and products that they released were there to generate more revenue for film. Richard brought up a point, you know, Shortly after the time Eastman had passed away, they started coming out with some of these more exciting cameras, which I'd like to explore a little bit here too. But sure. one question that I have never really fully understood is in 1931-32, Kodak famously paired up with Dr. August Nagel, who at the time had his own Nagel camera work because he was disenchanted uh, after working with Zeiss Icon, who acquired his previous company, Contessa Nettle, which itself was a merger of two separate companies. So uh, Nagel's story is, is a whole episode in of itself. But he here's a guy, incredibly intelligent, very technical, good at design. He made very good cameras. Um, by the time he had formed Nagel Camera Work, 
I th- I want to say he left Zeiss in 27, 28, maybe. Yeah, Naga was formed in 28. 28, okay, so yeah, I was he right. Actually, he had actually been on Eastman's radar in the earlier 20s. So they were well aware of his, okay. his, his thinking or genius. So, so sure. that's my question. Why did they pursue him? Why did Kodak want to have not just a Kodak in Germany? They wanted to like kind of get a pre- uh, an already established name like what was what was their motivation with that well they were looking at higher end cameras first of all right off the bat and 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 if you again i i don't know how well i explained this but if, if you look at the collection that i'm in charge of it's it's really uh manufacturing it's a history of manufacturing one very specific product and it's it starts in france and england then it comes to the u.s so the next place after the U.S. where labor is the cheapest and they do the best quality work was Germany. So he basically wanted to have a, a, a plant in Germany. And I think by that time, he decided it was cheaper to just buy an existing firm than it was to just start one. And he, you know, he he liked the the uh, or they liked the potential with with Noggles. It was was like a good fit. And again, you know, he, they, they buy the company in 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 28 uh, well, no, let, me t- let me take that. So the company was formed in twenty-eight. They bought it in thirty-two, uh, thirty-four. They come out with the with the with the first Retina, which is the first thirty-five, and the magazine that goes with it, uh, which is uh, and we do have examples of the first style film magazine it has changed a little bit over the years, but it still fits in those cameras. And and the the, the gist of it is they came up with a system that would fit in everybody else's thirty-five millimeter cameras. Isn't it true that the earlier cassettes were slightly less tall? Actually, they're slightly taller. They're taller. Okay. Well, that taller, and they have the little little dimples that actually hold the the ends of the caps on. There's a side effect of that that I've personally seen myself. When you get some of the 1930s German cameras, like the Zeiss Icon 10X2, if you load a modern cassette in there, the images are always shifted by a slight amount. They they slop around a little bit. They slop around. They'll fit. Yeah, but you'll you'll look a tiny bit of your image will overlap the perforations. And on the other side, there's too big of a gap because the cassettes we use today are of a slightly different size. Yeah. And if, if you look at the, the film boxes at the time, they actually sold 35 millimeter film for specific cameras. So for the context, for, for the Leica, they were not the right. same thing. Cause, cause again, their special cassettes were slightly different. E- even the, you know, Nikon sold their own special uh, trap, you know, light trap door, uh, cassettes and they're slightly different. The goal was to come up with something that would fit in all of them. So a big deal. But but again, the, the goal was to come up with a, 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 a higher quality products for different markets. Again, you're, you're looking at entry level markets. If if you look at the, the original Kodak catalogs and it doesn't really matter that much from anything, once you get into the, say the teens, into the twenties, you can kind of see what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you on, on in, into the product, then they want to move you up in the line. So they're the brownie level cameras, which is the introductory ones, and then you get into the Kodaks, and then at the back were the you know the Retinas and and and, and then the Pro things, and there was a, a completely separate catalogs for the for the professionals. But they 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 really wanted to move their customers up. Is what is what it looks like to me. So this is a good segue. Um, also joining us um, is Mr. Paul Barden. Paul is actually a fan of the show first. He had contacted me several months ago and said he really enjoys listening to the podcast. Um, but Paul, uh, there's there's a reason you're here and we're talking to you at this moment. So do you want to introduce yourself and, and speak a little about what, what you've been doing? Hi, um, thanks for asking me on the show. As many of you probably know by now, um, I kind of took up uh, where Chris Sherlock left off when he retired in April of 2022. I've corresponded with Chris quite a bit over the last few years, 
and I had been watching all of his tutorials on YouTube. Which he's still making. Which he's still making. Yeah. He, yeah. Did, he did take about eight months off where he wasn't doing any. Okay. But he was res he resumed again recently. Yeah. I think it was in about 2017. I was at a friend's shop uh, here in Corvallis. He um, he ran a, um, a photo retouching shop, but he also um, had a display in his front of the shop where he sold cameras that people wanted to get rid of. And uh, one day I went in and he had a Retina 010, the first post-war Retina. Mm -hmm. And it was $10. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that's a nice looking camera. It looks like that's a well-made device. You know, you pick it up and you realize, oh, this is this is a, a good piece of equipment. It, it's been well-engineered. And uh, I bought it and I took it home and um, nothing worked. The aperture was frozen shut with oil and the shutter didn't work properly. And and I so I set it aside for a few months and I thought, well, I guess there's not much I'm going to do with this because I'm not particularly mechanically inclined or so i thought i discovered that chris was doing tutorials on youtube how to repair and restore them and i started watching them and you know watching i'm sure most of you have seen chris sherlock's videos um you can't help but find it pretty fascinating to watch him strip a camera apart and clean it and rebuild it uh and i know i was Real quick, um, even though you know he's known as Retina, he did a review. I'm sorry, a repair video for the Fotlander Vitessa, the barn door camera. Yes. And uh, I had one here that the plunger was stuck, the film advanced plunger, and I felt like it worked. I just felt like something had slipped. So I was like, I wonder if there's a repair video for this camera. And I went on YouTube. The first hit was Chris Sherlock's video. And it of was course. in like, it was in like eight parts. So I like had to fast forward mm -hmm. and it was like, I don't know, let's just say part six or something. But sure enough, he showed how you actually take the entire shutter mechanism out of the camera with four screws in the film compartment. And like you think of any Fotlander. The Vitessas, the barn doors are complicated cameras, but he simplified it so much that I was able to just pull the shutter completely out of the camera. And then I could see the, the, the gearing for the plunger. And sure enough, it had just slipped. And all I had to do was yep. kind of realign it back up. I just put it back together, prayed. It went back. The camera works fine. So while I mm -hmm. would absolutely not encourage people to randomly take apart Fotlander uh, cameras. Uh, in that instance, I, I benefited from those videos because he just does such a great job with them. I can imagine that there are an awful lot of people out there who have uh, braved the disassembly and repair of a camera because of him. Um, yeah, for sure. I, you know, that would that was certainly me too. I never imagined that I was going to get into doing that sort of thing, let alone do it for, for work. Um, but that's, that's how it happened with me was just watching Chris disassemble and repair cameras and i became quite fascinated with what he was doing and decided to do some of that myself anyway long story short i ended up repairing that camera and i ended up acquiring a number of other retina models and i probably got about 50 or so various models and i have uh, repaired and restored most of them myself now mm -hmm. but um it was just about six or eight months before Chris announced his retirement. Um, I told him, you know, I'm thinking about starting to do this, to offer this service um, for people as well. 
uh, because he and I had been talking about this and he said that his retirement was on the horizon. He was planning on um, stopping taking in work about at least a year before he actually did it. So we'd been discussing it. When the time came in April of 22 that he made the official announcement, we'd already been talking about the fact that he was going to be recommending me as the person to take over in his place doing retina repairs here in the U.S. I don't do all of the cameras that he did. I, I still don't do the retina reflexes. Um, I don't like them. They're a lot of work and the complexity is just outrageous. And so I, I don't do those. Do you do the non-folding retinas, like the S? I, in fact, I do the I do the three S. I haven't done a two S, but I don't think it's particularly different. In fact, I have one of my three S's with me. Okay. Uh, and I serviced that one about six six or eight months ago. I had it for about a year before I decided to tackle it because I knew that it was quite a bit more more complex than say a three C. But I said, well. I, it doesn't work the way it is. Somebody gave it to me. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose except an opportunity to learn how to do this one. So I just went at it and it wasn't really as much trouble as I thought. Um, the one thing that I did do that Chris doesn't do is that I disabled the meter drum. I just took the cord off of it um, because the meter on this one was dead anyway. So it really didn't play much of a role. And to be honest, the camera works a lot nicer without having to engage that string that controls the meter drum. It makes it a much nicer camera. I'm very familiar with the string. <laughs> Paul, the, the last time I was in Berlin, uh, I was in a, a, a camera shop and I was asking around if there was anybody in Berlin that still did repair work on the ret retina reflexes. And the guy gave me just a big, deep laugh. And he points to the wall and there was like a... A uh, three by four foot board on the wall where they had completely disassembled a uh, retina reflex three and put every single part up on the board. And he points to it <laughs> and he said, the last person in Berlin that repaired the retina, this is what he did with his last camera. So he would never have to work on it again. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Yeah. They are a monstrosity. Yeah. Ha having done the three S the, the biggest difference between that and any of the reflexes is that it doesn't have that horrible capping plate mechanism that caps over the back of the film gate. Um, because the 3S and the 2S are still range finders. They're solid body range finders. And um, since they omit the whole capping plate thing in the back, that eliminates a lot of the complexity that is really problematic in the reflexes. So if let's say, and obviously you, there's no way to guarantee 100%, even with the best CLA, an 80-year-old camera is still an 80-year-old camera. But would you say that there's specific retina models that once they're serviced, they're good to go for quite a while that are still dependable shooters with, with a proper cleaning and, and adjustment? Um, yes. But basically, that describes everything up to the reflex. Um, because in all honesty, even from the 117, which was the first one, that once you've cleaned it, if it hasn't been damaged or misused, there's no reason to think that it won't operate perfectly well for another 25 years after right. it's had a proper cleaning. They're so well built. So you're saying that the pre-wars and the post-war rangefinders can still be brought to within pretty close 
to like original factory condition. If if they haven't been abused, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Absolutely. In terms of usability and user friendliness, of course, the later ones are better cameras. They're more capable. As soon as you add in things like a light meter and a range finder, which is, which is a huge help, then that just makes it a much more user-friendly camera and more capable. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people, um, if they want to end up with the best of those Kodak AG manufactured cameras, that's a good user, a reliable and easy camera, they're looking at usually the 2A, the Type 016, um, or the 3C or the 2C, any of that range of models. Um, the nice thing about the 3Cs before they started venturing into things like the reflexes is that they are still collapsible cameras and they're pocketable and they haven't grown so bulky that carrying them around becomes an obstacle. I'm actually working on a review for the big, the three big C. The type 028, yeah. Yeah, a, a little preview is um, I'm probably going to refer to it as the best retina rangefinder in terms of like a capability, the huge viewfinder, the multiple frame lines, the uh, interchangeable lens mount. But I might say it's the best or highest featured, but my favorite retina to use is actually the 1B, the big B. And the reason I like that camera so much is it has the benefit of the later models that are a little bit more ergonomically you know, curved. Um, it has the huge viewfinder, but it lacks a rangefinder. It's a scale focused camera. And something that I've I've talked about quite a number of times is is while I love rangefinders, they're very cool, and there's many instances where they're useful. Unless you're shooting a lot of photography indoors, you know, low light, or you do a lot of close-ups, you really don't need rangefinders for a walkabout, street photography, landscapes, even group photos. And I find, and maybe you know, I, I'm weird about this. I don't know if this is something other people have experienced too. I find that if I'm looking through a camera with a rangefinder, I could ignore it, but I don't. I feel mm -hmm. like obligated to focus, get that image lined up at all costs. And that slows you down. It does. If you just take the rangefinder out completely and just don't even have that as an option, you find yourself adapting to the situation, you know, shooting the camera to its strengths. And you start to get into things like zone focus. And when you free yourself from having to focus a camera with something like the 1B with a nice bright viewfinder and a great lens and good ergonomics, you, you're going to have a, a lot of fun and you're going to be able to shoot a lot quicker. I'm much more likely to get a, an in-focus image with a scale focus camera of running children than I ever could with a rangefinder. Yeah. So even though I, I would go on record as to say that maybe the big C might be the best retina. It's not my favorite, and it's not the one that I would probably go to over and over again. For for that, it still has been the one B. Yeah, I can, I understand what you're saying about that. If you're not if you're not looking at and tinkering with um, the the camera controls, like even just focus, if you can set that aside and just use it and know that your zone focusing is going to get you where you want to go, then that just frees you up to just kind of wing it, and you can go a lot faster. Um, you can stop fussing with uh, camera controls and it just lets you get things done. I have one of the 1B, the, the big B that you're talking about. I have one example of that and I actually bought it to restore it and sell and I could never sell it. Nobody wanted it. Oh, really? So it, it's on my, it, yeah, it's on my shelf now. And uh, 
but nope, nobody wanted it. If it's for sale, I'll, I'll tell any listener <laughs> of the show, it's a great user. Yeah. Don't get hung up on the gas part of it. Don't worry about the, the lack of a meter, the lack of a... Uh, uh, does it have the interchangeable mount? I don't think it does, right? I don't Inter- think what? So. Interchangeable the lens? The front elements mount, doesn't come off on the 1B. Here I am talking about how much I love it, and I actually haven't looked at mine in probably a year. But... Oh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you can use the accessory lenses. Yeah. On it. Okay. It's the same. It's the same mount as the rest of the three C, two C types. Right. I think you're right, but like the lack of the um the lack of the rangefinder, I will put my stamp on this is not a detriment to that camera. It it actually yep. frees you to shoot it. So maybe we'll get yep. it sold for you. <laughs> <laughs> well it's happy where it is for right now but <laughs> I, I you know i've got a, a 3c the small c and i love that camera like you say it's so pocketable i i was actually just shooting it just last week but i will say that you know that the xenon lens that's on it is so fantastic that i also have the full set of the auxiliary lenses for it and i always just mm-hmm. considered those to be like the german idea of a practical joke um because they are so fussy and weird and difficult to work with, with the, like the conversion factors for focusing and all. And you have to yes. have the tiniest fingers to be able to get in there, especially with the big lens uh, yeah. and, and work on the focus that, that I couldn't imagine anybody actually using those willingly. Just uh, set them to infinity and then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Realistically, those accessory lenses are not really very practical. They're usable if you're dealing with going out, making photographs, where your subject is going to be still, you know, it's not going anywhere and you can spend three minutes to focus and then look at the refocusing scale and refocus and, or, or, you know, even just using a small aperture and using zone focusing, but they're fussy and using them is a real obstacle. They're great lenses. They're very well made, but they are tedious to work with. You can't even fold the camera shut with a mounted. It's like you now have nope. this protruding lens on it with a door hanging open. Good luck sticking that in your pocket. Yep. <laughs> Maybe this is a question for either Todd or Paul. Paul, um, you know, I know you're not necessarily a historian, but you know, so so Kodak bought Nagel. Uh Nagel didn't just make the retina. I mean, he brought over the Valenda, he brought over the Ricomar, you know, all these Nagel cameras that he had been making that were of the highest German quality, equally on par with what Zeiss was putting out at the time. Kodak clearly was aiming for the high end of the market. Todd, you had said that they wanted a kind of an escalation to have something to offer anybody at all skill levels. But other than the Kodak, though, you know, you get into the post-war cameras were there any other models that Kodak produced in America that were like high end or, or at least could hold a candle to the retinas? Well, the the, 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 first, the first Signet 35, I mean, it's, it's got a really great lens. The shutter is so-so, but uh, great lens. I, I, I think basically, and I, I oddly enough had this conversation with good old Dr. Rudolph Kingslake back in, in the whole days. Uh, in, in a slightly different way, I, I asked him why why Kodak bowed out of the uh, the the view camera lens market uh, in the early '60s, and he basically said, "Well, we couldn't afford to compete with the post-war German cheap German labor." So I, I, again, I, I think once you get too far into this, the cost of labor uh, relative to what you're going to get from, from overseas really really kind of was the one that that uh, caused it. Uh, I see you're holding a, a, an extra right there, so. 
again, uh, yeah, the the, uh, the Ektra had uh, the best optics in the world at the time, uh, but that was not really a. You know, we'll have to be polite about this. It's it's certainly a wonderful camera, but it's it wasn't mechanically dependable. They they were a little fussy. Uh, you got to be very careful. No, 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 not a little, not a little, no, Tom. No. They're extremely fussy. <laughs> Between Mike and I, we've owned several of them, and I, I'm not sure we've had one yet that worked. Yeah, this one does work. It has been serviced, but it it's it's very tight, and I just feel like it's on the verge of imploding. And some some people are like, well, then don't use it. It's like, you know what? I'm going to use this thing until it dies. I want the enjoyment of being able to say I have an extra I could shoot things on. And there's so many things I could go on and on about the extra and I won't. But the one thing that I did really like about it, and it's probably the reason the shutter fails so often on it, most focal plane horizontally traveling shutters are similar to the Leica shutter. I know they're not exactly copies, but one characteristic of most of the focal plane shutters like the Leica used is that the first curtain opens and then it reaches a certain point and then the second curtain starts to close and that sweeping motion is your gap. So when you hear about X-Sync and flash sync on a focal plane shutter camera, that's the fastest speed which the film gate is completely open. So the first curtain has opened, the sh second curtain starts to shut. Anything faster than that, and it's happening like a slit, okay? Right. Right. But how Leica did it was the first curtain starts to open, and the second curtain is delayed. And at whatever point it needs to start moving, the second curtain then starts to shut, right? But the Kodak Extra is different. So on the Leica, there's a point at which it's it's getting wider, then it reaches its limit, it moves across the film gate, and then the first curtain reaches its limit, and then the second one closes. So technically, you're allowing slightly less light on the edges. And with the Extra, what it does is when you change the shutter speeds, you're actually separating those curtains before you even fire the shutter. So at, let's say, uh, one one hundredth of a second or one two hundredth, right? You're setting that gap before you even fire the shutter so that when you do fire the shutter, both curtains move with that gap already set across the entire frame. In theory, that should be more accurate. And maybe it was, but it just doesn't hold up. It's like it's they they aimed a little too high and couldn't make something that was dependable. And yeah, from, from what I understand, this goes back again to a conversation I had with Bill Fujimura about the extra. He was a, a big fan of the camera being a lens designer and all. Um, he, he said that the 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 adjustments are very, very finicky that you have to make sure you have them. There's a little bit of slop in them. You got to make sure they're pointed exactly where you want it to be. And he said that that's one of the main reasons they fail is you they weren't aligned properly. In other words, there's just basically too much slop in the in the dials. That's just what he said. I I I'm, I was never a uh, an extra user. Yeah. Todd, I have a question for you because I know that 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 Paul just held up his his medalist, and for me, the medalist is like my ultimate Kodak camera because it has both that sense of design and style from, you know, Walter Dorwin Teague. Yeah. And yet it also produces a spectacular image. And it's actually, I think personally, I'm a weirdo. I think it's a fun camera to use. Um, how, you know, where does that fit in with what Kodak was doing today? Cause I know that it got swallowed up by the military with the uh, onset of the war but it was obviously in development before then. Was this seen as like an American high-end, 
like a, a professional's camera? Was it a design project? Was it a vanity project? How did the how did the medalist come about? The from what I understand, the medalist was originally designed for the Navy, and it turned into a into a consumer product. That lens actually will cover four by five. I actually have shot four by five with one, and it does cover. So, uh, but it, it's it's kind of a a, a, a uh, an odd answer to a bellows camera, if you would, because of the way the helicoil uh, comes out. But it's 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 a it's a tank. It was intended to be uh, an incredibly durable camera, and it is. I mean, to to this day, it's one of the best cameras they ever made. It's unlike the Ektra. It, it, it's really not that fussy to use. Everything works on it. The the later ones, you know, the the I don't know if you're familiar with the early ones that have the black focus. Those tend to not have coated lenses on them, and I believe some of those do have military markings on them. Uh, where the the, the post war was the medalist too. The only thing that really happens to them is the helicoil focus system kind of sets up a little bit, from my knowledge. And all you got to do is use it, and it will loosen up just by uh, moving it back and forth a bit. That that's probably the best camera they ever made, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the Chevron was nice, but it was, wasn't the medalist. The only thing that I've ever seen a problem with them was if you tried to shoot it with the lens not not uh, hit, with the helicoid not out to the proper position. It will let you do that. You could damage, you could damage the shutter if you yeah. pushed it too hard. But Paul, have you considered repairing medalists or, or do, you, do you repair them? Um, I don't. Um, I have a service manual for it and I've read it through. Um, it's not a particularly complicated camera to work on, but... Um, to be honest, my hands are full with the amount of retina repairs yeah. that I do. Ken Ruth. There, there used Ken to be Ruth Ken Ruth, him. right? Yeah, he yeah. he would repair them and he would modify them to accept one twenty without having to respool. But I I'm glad to hear you say that, Paul, because the the medalist does have a pretty poor repu reputation for um, reliability. But I, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the various interlocks that the camera has. Like Paul said, you can't fire the shutter until the helicoid is, is extended to the proper length. You know, the exposure counter was a huge point of failure on that camera, but the shutter was pretty reliable. The lens was great. And apart from uh, the, a couple interlocks, a prism viewfinder and a complicated film counter, it's essentially a hollow box yeah, and so. there's not a lot to go wrong with it. So I think if somebody like maybe your identical twin, uh, Peter, yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you could clone yourself and there was someone willing to take up metalist repair, uh, I, I don't think it would be that hard. They should be serviceable because I love them. Anthony loves them. I know many, many people that really, really love the metalist because it, it ergonomically, it does leave a bit to be desired. But once you get over the ergonomics, it is a fantastic shooter. It's my go-to camera for, for six by nine infrared. Uh, and I yeah. use the uh, the series seven uh, adapters for it. And uh, I just, I just really, really enjoy that camera. And Todd, to get back to the Chevron, I think that you're absolutely right. Chevron, you know, in spite of the fact it's got that, beautiful Chrysler building style to it. Um, it just seems like a, a, a camera that was hacked to death by a committee yeah. that it was a bit of a parts bin camera. And that, that even though it had the style and it had the ability to be sort of the follow-up to the medalist, um, it's not even as much fun to shoot as a signet. And also realize when it came to Eastman Kodak company, the money really was in the film. And, and basically, right. Hey, as long as everybody else is using our film, we don't really care. So the, the patents are very funny things that the, the patent wars and all that sort of stuff. But you, you start looking at what's going on all around the rest of the world. I mean, the, the, the first Hasselblad had a, had a Kodak lens on it. And they, then they switched over to the, to the Zeiss because the Kodak lens was too expensive. So 
you know, there, there's one thing of, of when you're looking at it from today, you just see the old products, but you got to realize there, there is a cost involved in manufacturing these things. And they realize that the labor's more here. So we'll just do it yeah. right, for, for better or worse. Just to talk, someone mentioned that Dorman Teague and the cameras during this period, like the post-war period particularly, which seemed to go from gorgeous to, you know, like a Chevron or the, um, the Rangefinder 35. Uh, how how much of an influence did Teague and his company have continuing with uh, Kodak? Well, Teague was a consultant, right? Okay. I mean, Teague was a consultant. He designed, as the saying goes, trains to toasters. He designed everything. I have a picture of yes. him actually holding up uh, – uh, the brownie, the the brownie uh, star flash from from the from the fifties. So that was one of the last things that he worked on. But uh, he he was he did the externals. He didn't do the ex internals. Yeah, you know, I gotta say you can't go too far wrong with the Bantam Special. I don't know if I'd exactly want to use one, but it certainly is a is a great looking camera. So there's a, there's sort of a combination of, of of things, and it really depends on the market. I mean, some of this stuff. Uh, is for a more flashier market, if you would. It's it's like it's like the watch market. You know, if if you have a a, a, a nice mechanical watch with a with a well known ETA movement on it or something or other, that that's a great thing. But it's it's they still all tell you the same time. But in, in the case of a case of an Eastman Kodak company, their money really was in in in, in film. Uh, the cameras, I mean, profit margins on film has never been published. It's it's high. Uh, cameras, consumer products, you're probably looking at 12, 10, 12 percent, maybe 15 percent. Where film is is uh, you know 10 times that, depending on what right. it is. I mean, I don't I don't know the exact numbers. I'll tell you, it's really really high. And to this day, they don't tell you what it is, and and they're they're very sensitive of talking about that. And I I, I can't get into it because I don't really know the numbers. I, yeah. I do know it's really really high. Yeah, you said at the very beginning, you said it was uh, on the um, the Fortune 500, probably the highest gross margin product of anybody's products at at one time. Right. If if you look at one other thing that the company did back in the days of of the 800 system, you'd call the KickNet, and they'd answer your questions. If you wanted an instruction manual, they'd send you an instruction manual for any camera they ever made, period, mm -hmm. free. Nobody else in the world did that. Well, how could they afford to do that? Was because uh, film was so high. And and if you look at all of their their uh, their, their their various uh, they had publications that were meant for the sales force. They, they teach you how to sell things. And it's the whole concept of keep the customer happy. The customer is always right. And, and uh, you know, and, and that's basically what it does. You know, happy customers buy more products. And that, that's just the way it goes. Nobody else did this. And why could they do that? Well, it's just because of the profit margin. It's, it's, it's really that simple. Sorry, just one more design question. Um, I know some of us here are Kodak Monitor fans, and uh, later on the, the tourist. What's the consensus? The, the consensus on the, the like a tourist, for instance, is that was that an in-house product, in-house design? I think that's that... an in-house design. I don't know for sure. Uh, as far as the monitor goes, that's again one of my favorite shooters. Uh, I do have one of those. I've got one with an Anastigmat special that's coated, so it's basically a, a pretend Ektar, if you would. It's it's a great camera, other than the 620 film. I mean, if you want to, there we go. If you want to shoot with with a, a really nice folder, you're not going to go too far wrong with with a monitor. The the the, the upside of the monitor over the uh, the Series Three that you just held up there is is the shutter's faster. It, it has a, a 400. The, the, one of the cameras that's sitting on my desk is is a Series Three. Uh, folding pocket codec that takes 120 film in it. It's it's a great camera, but the high shutter speed is only a hundredth of a second. So you're going to have some trouble with that. Uh, but but uh, I mean, it's is you know it, it really the, the the question when it comes to Kodak and and, and cameras and, and wanting to shoot film is you want to pick one 
uh, that will that will kind of check off the boxes. Is there film available in that size? Or uh, the, the monitor six twenty is great, but you got you got to flip you, you got to flip the spool, uh, which is not complicated. But it's you know if if, if you're just a beginner, that's going to be a little more complicated. The the the, the series three uh, in the one twenty size is a nice camera, but the shutter speed's a little slow. If you're in my four hundred speed black and white film in it, you're going to have a little bit of you know you're basically always going to be shooting really slow, uh, you know, because it only goes on it through a second. You, you really wish you could push it up and you can't. You could do some Franken camera stuff, stick a different lens and shutter on it if you want, I suppose. But most people who are starting aren't going to do that. So they, they, they tend to drift more towards things that you can readily use without having to mess with too much. Uh, in in thinking about this, uh, one of the people who works in IT is a is 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 probably a I don't know thirty ish something has gotten into film photography and he's he's asked me questions about what what should I what what do you think is a good camera to use and, and I you know I I tend to direct them towards things that are more dependable and 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 uh, and thirty five I mean it I I just got interested in the Nikonos too why well because it's got a big viewfinder. I've gotten older and, and a big viewfinder is nice and you Great have to mess with too. a rangefinder that I can't see anymore. And you look on the front, it's like the easiest zone focus camera there is to use. Right. Yeah. So I don't think you're going to find a whole lot of people arguing about that. It, it is a little bit bizarre to use just because the way it works, but that's, that's part of the fun of it. And other than, I mean, how, how far wrong can you go with a night with an icon F F2 F3, you know, I mean, just, uh, I mean, I, I, I have a user F3 that I think i I think I paid a hundred bucks for it when, when when the stuff hit the hit the hit the market because uh, the you know film just suddenly disappeared and now they've they've more than tripled in price and and mine's mine's banged up because it's been used a lot and uh, the ones we have in the museum are all brand new in the box so at some point this one will find a new home and it's got a little bit of wear on it which is great as far as I'm concerned the Kodak monitor I'm a fan of I've shot I know Anthony has when he likes it too uh, in some ways it's like a folding version of the Metalist yeah um, it is. But the the monitor has the same problem that the tourist does, which is also another good camera. In fact, the top of the line tourist has the same shutter as the Chevron. It has a, a twin blade shutter that can go up to one eight hundredth of a second, which was really fast for medium format leaf shutter. But the problem with the tourist and the monitor are the bellows. They are they just don't hold up. Don't listen to eBay sellers. If you find one of those cameras that says the bellows are light tight, I assure you they are not. And even if somehow they are, the act of you opening and closing it to shoot it, you will create pinholes. So um, unless you're willing to, I've done this before. I think Anthony has too. Um, In fact, I shot a Kanishiroku Pearl Rat a while back with tons of holes in the bellows. I just made a baffle. That completely covered the bellows. It looks terrible. You can't fold it shut with it like that, but will at least allow you the experience of going through a roll of film. Um, And I know that guys like Jurgen from Certo 6 who do bellows replacements, um, unfortunately won't usually touch Kodak folders because of the, the difficulty of removing the bellows are usually riveted in. So sometimes those yeah, other tabs. I don't know if you've uh, or if any of you watched the History Channel program called Secret Restorations. Uh, they they came and filmed me changing a bellows uh, on a, on a camera about a year ago. It it aired in December, and it's it's oh, what a, what a what a new, and actually yeah. it turned out it was a Kodak it was a Kodak Limited camera, which I was not expecting. Oh, so other than trying to find the bellows, the Kodak Limited ones yeah. are actually glued in, which makes it even more fun. Uh, the earlier ones have little folding tabs that you 
you kind of hope that it doesn't break when you unbend them. And and, and again, they, as you said, they're riveted in. So so bellows cameras are, you know, you, you get what you get. Sometimes you can fix them with, with you know, with, with various silicone type glues on the inside, depending on how big they are, but they tend to get worse as time goes on. Paul so. Barden, um, in fact, I think one of the first times you and I spoke, you had corrected me when I had made a comment about retinas having leather bellows, right? Right. Retinas surprise our bellows cameras, but usually they don't suffer from light leaks. I mean, they can, but your chances of shooting a retina without light leaks are much higher than some of the other Kodak bellows cameras. Is there is there just something different with the design? Do you know? Like, why, why do Kodak retinas tend to hold up a little bit better than other Kodak cameras from the same era? Well, as far as I know, all of the pre-war um, folding ones bellows material it's a kind of paper laminated onto fabric and whatever it is that they've they've made uh these out of whatever paper they've used it's incredibly resilient and those two those two materials laminated together you can fold them and fold them and fold them as much as you like and they just don't develop holes um i don't know how they did it i'm not sure exactly what the materials are i don't know if todd knows um, I'm not sure that David Jens knows, but it's incredibly resilient. The only ones that I have seen that have had to be repaired or patched, somebody has like slipped with a screwdriver or some sharp yeah, tool and accidentally it. punctured it. You know, it, it, it has suffered some injury to actually cause that sort of damage. They're not at all like the uh, material that's on the uh, tourists or those later cold, uh, Kodak folders. It's yeah. much more resilient material. So here's a question for Anthony. If we know that the German-built Nagel cameras have generally better bellows and can survive and not have light leaks, let's say I wanted to shoot a Kodak camera, but medium format, and I wanted like an, an equivalent medium format retina. Is there anything that was ever made like that? Well, I am currently enamored with the uh, the Duo 620, uh, which is another Nagel camera. And uh, I think Paul was telling me earlier that it was, uh, is it, was it related to the Valenda? I think it was an evolution from the Valenda, but I'm not sure. Todd would probably know that. Yeah, I, I think there's a relationship there. It, it, it is a good shooter. Uh, and uh, then there's 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 the uh, oh, Gulliver's, uh, the overgrown one, um, which I'm kind of... The Regent? Yeah, the Regent. I mean, it, yeah. they're, they're not common. I mean, basically, it, it's kind of an expensive camera to, to go out and shoot with. They're hard to find. They're I have one. Find. And it, as far as Rochester-made cameras, the 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 pre nineteen twelve, the red bellows is, is a much better material than the black bellows. And as far as the 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 black bellows cameras, it really varies from sample to sample. H- having for, for better or worse, looked at more folding cameras than you can probably imagine. And and some of them are, are pretty mint condition. Uh, some of them are really, really good still. And, and some of them are just not. I mean, some that have never been opened, uh, you can't open them because it's all basically all sort of cemented together. When you hear that cracking sound as you're opening a camera, that's not a good sound. That's not a good sound. You've, you've essentially unintentionally created pinholes it would be it would be done yeah but some of the ones that receive you know uh some light use the the material seems to be different uh there's like a series of of vpks again one of my favorite cameras of all time some of them are awful Uh, you open them up and the parts just go flying over and and some of them look like they were just 
the bellows is almost as like it was when it was new and it's still still flexible. So some of it has to do most likely with the where it was stored, the kind of climate that it was in. Uh, Rochester tends to be kind of a humid place, so I don't think they dry out. I don't think they're a good Arizona type camera, but but it's uh, it, it really is the luck of the draw in a way. And unfortunately, on eBay or Amazon, whatever, you can't yeah. tell because you got to you got to have it in front of you to take a look at it. And as you say, when you open it, you'll know right away if it if it goes snap, yeah. crackle, and pop. You know, it, it just leave it on the shelf. It's not going to work. If it feels smooth, it's probably fine. They they were using uh, the camera that that Paul's holding up that looks like it has some sort of a vinyl ish uh, bellows of some sort. Which is that a vigilant? Still... I can't tell. I think so. This is a a special six twenty. Yeah. yeah, that looks like it's basically a monitor without the extra finder on the top. And yeah. a different, anyway, but it's that looks like it's got a perfectly fine bellow. So some of them were actually pretty good and some of them are not. And all you got to yeah. do is you got to look at them. And, and if you're going to buy it and, and use it, bring a flashlight and stick it inside, you'll know right away. To answer my own question, I had asked Anthony that question very specifically because I know he had recently shot the Duo 620. And, and I concur with him. That is. The, the duo, whenever you hear a Kodak camera with the word duo, it means four by five or sorry, 4.5 by six. That would be the Kodak equivalent to a Japanese semi. The duo has that perfect balance of being usually works, but also still fairly easy to find. You know, the Regent you mentioned, Todd, is would also qualify, except they're very rare. They're, they're going to be expensive, yeah. Yeah, and even if you did, the rangefinder is probably broken on it. But the duos, honestly, you can find them on eBay fairly easily. So if someone's out there and they're interested in shooting a Kodak, uh, they like the German cameras, but they don't want to deal with potential light leaks um, and want to uh, increase their chances of being successful, but also a larger negative, 100%, the Kodak Duo 620. There's a There was a one, two, and a three. The three is the rarest. I see Paul's holding up. It looks like a two. So. The one has more of an art deco design to the top plate, and the three had a range finder, but those are really rare. But either the, the, the Series 1 or Series 2 Kodak Duo 620s are fantastic shooters. So you could get these cameras made by Nagel Camo Work with the original name. Mostly they would go unchanged under the Kodak versions with maybe some subtle tweaks here and there. Uh, unfortunately, I think all of the medium format Nagel cameras were discontinued after the war. So, you know, it was just the retinas at that point. The, the monitors are great shooters. Unfortunately, they're plagued by bad bellows. The tourists can be great too. Uh, I liked earlier, Todd, you, you quickly mentioned the Signet 35. You know, the shutter is only four speeds. Uh, but other than that, if you could work within those four speeds, it's got a great really? lens. It's got a pretty large viewfinder. It has a triangular viewfinder patch, which is similar to the Super 620. The auto the auto exposure camera had a triangular rangefinder too. Uh, it's got the large oversized knobs. It's an attractive looking kind of military look, you know, industrial kind of design camera. The Kodak Signet 35 is usually my most underrated American rangefinder camera out there that you can get for dirt cheap. I mean, they, they made a ton of those and you can find them very easily. In its, in its time period, that's one of the best lenses that was out there. So yeah, it's a four element Ektar on that camera, right? Yeah. 44 millimeter. One problem I've encountered with the Signets is that the ones manufactured in the first two or three years, the silvering on the mirror, uh, the semi-silvered mirror in the rangefinder is really poorly done. And more often than not, the very early ones, when you find one of them, the silvering on the mirror is going to be mostly gone 
which renders the rangefinder very difficult to use. That's their biggest problem is the is the silvering on the rangefinder mirror. That's a good tip. The ones that came, you know, later on, I don't remember where the cutoff was, um, but I've noticed the ones they have different knobs on the focusing ring. On the first uh, couple of years, it's a kind of a semi-circular uh, rounded knob for your thumb, and the ones that came like in, I want to say. F- Oh, I don't know what the years were. Um, the late, the later versions of it, they had a different shaped knob uh, okay. on the focusing ring, and those are the ones to look for because they have much better silvering on the mirrors. We can, uh, I can explore that a little bit and see if I could figure out and maybe show some images on the Facebook page. The, this is one of the later ones, and it has a little uh, serrated paddle shape that's kind of more square than round. I gotcha. Okay. And these are the later ones. Let's see. What does this say on the lens here? RR. So that's. 55. Is that correct? Yeah. Wait, wait a minute, Paul. I don't understand. What do you mean by RR? How'd you know that? Uh, The serial number on the lens, the Camerosity serial code. Oh, wait a minute. What did you say it was called? The Camerosity serial code. And what's the name of this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. No, (laughs) I mean, not kidding. But yeah, I I picked that name. Uh, I love that word. I originally wanted to make my website, MikeEckman.com, actually sound more camera related, you know, since I reviewed cameras and I desperately tried to register Camerosity.com, but it turns out the owner of that domain is a guy from uh, SoCal Berkeley and uh, he refused to sell it to me. So um, in a way to mildly get back at him when when it came, originally this podcast was cocaine and waffles. We talked about that last episode, but when, when I really wanted to kind of keep going with, I'm like, I need to have a better name. And we came up or I came up with Camerosity. So, uh, but yes, the Camerosity, uh, it was a date code system that they only used in the United States, right? What, what was the version of it in, in England? Hi, this is Mike. During this segment of the show, we tried to remember what the UK version of the Camerosity date code was, and none of us could remember it. It turns out it was Cumberland, C-U-M-B-E-R-L-A-N-D. If you find a British-made camera lens and it has a date code, it uses that code system, not Camerosity. Once we get past like the Motormatic and the getting into the 60s, it seems like Kodak kind of lost the map, so to speak, and that you went through this like rapid cycle of introducing radical new formats that were going to make photography easy for the masses again. So you have your Instamatics and you've got your disc cameras and you've got your APS. And so, I mean, at that point was, uh, was this, was this Kodak realizing that they were just going to have to like, you know, innovate to, to move forward and just throwing everything against the wall to seeing what would stick. Uh, Did they really think that the disc camera was like a great idea that was going to uh, work? Well, first of all, some of this is just flat out numbers. If, If you look at the, uh, the Instamatic cameras, which is basically the replacement for the Brownie, at least for the 100, the 104. They sell, sold over 75 million of those cameras. So incredibly successful. Uh, the 110, incredibly successful. Basically, the for whatever reason, uh, from what I understand, they had it, they, they, they were convinced that people could not load film cameras correctly. That's why they went to the drop-in cartridge. I worked in a camera store for a, a few years Uh, When I got out of college, and I can tell you, and probably anybody else who worked in a camera store will concur on this, that a certain percentage of the customers would actually have the people behind the counter load the camera for them because they couldn't they couldn't thread the film into the camera properly. So that was that was the mindset was to come up with something that was incredibly easy to use. Uh, And again, I think they realized 
that the high-end film cameras really was was a, a price point they couldn't compete with relative to what was going on in Japan. And that's that's pretty much what happened. As far as the disc goes, they did sell over 25 million of them. From what I understand, the goal was 100 million. Uh, it, in some ways, it's it's not really a faulty design. It's a, a, I, I guess I would probably blame it on the business model. And again, this is from my experience working behind a counter in a camera store, not, you know, Kodak I ne never told me anything any about this sort of stuff. Uh, I worked in a camera store in the mid 80s. That was at the time when the Japanese finally succeeded in, in creating auto loading 35s. And, and basically, and again, they had auto load 30s, 5s in the 60s, but they really didn't work very well. Once you get into things like the, the Canon Sure Shot, it, it pretty much killed the market, to, to be honest with you. And the gist of it is when, when we sold cam cameras, our goal was repeated customers we wanted them to, to we wanted to find the product that that they were looking for that would serve their need and we used the, the sample snapshots to do this we would show the, these are images from the 110 these are the images from the disc these are images from the 126 cartridge because the x15 was still available at that time and these are the images from the Canon SureShot or the Konica C35, whatever we had on the shelf at the C35 Auto. And basically the snapshots sold the pictures. You looked a little bit at the price points, but as much as anything else, it had to do with that. And from the from the, 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 the camera store point of view, is you wanted to keep your customers happy because it was a repeat business. So uh, the, the Kodak business was largely film and processing from the behind the counter point of view. And the goal was to make your customers happy. So as much as anything else, it, it aside from what Kodak was making, and it, it made their market happy. You know, it, there there are people. Uh, here you go. This is another one that's just going to go. I don't. You know, this will blow your mind. I remember having a conversation with Rudolph Kingslake, Dr. Kingslake, about the Kodak disc camera, and he said it was the best camera ever made. And he said it's because it's it's the one you can have in your pocket. The best camera is the one you have with you. And you know, he was right. They, you know, so it's the size has a lot to do with it too. So sure, there's sure. there's many many factors here. So it isn't just what the camera nerds look at. The the disc actually under ideal lighting conditions did make pretty good images. Had a really nice lens in it. That's actually one of the better lenses they ever designed. Believe it or not, uh, it was the film size. And it, it the the disc is basically your your classic case of engineers arguing with marketing and the marketing people won. They wanted its pocket size. That, that's sort of what it boiled down to. Well, wasn't one of the fatal flaws of disc too that um, even though the images had a decent amount of resolution, you needed specific enlargers, like a six element lens in the machines that most photo finishers chose not to purchase? Well, the, the, right. The other thing that, that, that comes in the problem with the disc is exactly that. It's the photo finishing. So the yeah. disc also sort of times in when the mini labs are set up in the stores and they didn't necessarily have the right processing right. equipment for it. So it would have to go back. So if you shot with a disc under ideal lighting conditions and you sent it back to Kodak for the photo finishing, the pictures were actually pretty decent. Hypothetically speaking, if someone were to make a new disc film and if we were to shoot them today with our technology for scanning that we have now, you would probably get significantly better looking images than yeah, you, you got would, back especially then. again, especially if you pick the T grain film, it would gotcha. be significantly better. You, you got to realize how long it takes to bring these product to market. This was this was a long design, probably a, a, a seven eight year pro project too. We briefly uh, mentioned the Instamatic, so I got a trivia question for the panel here. Uh, well, if Todd, you know the answer to this one, you can be the last one. But who designed the Kodak one twenty six Instamatic cassette? Does anybody know? He was a German. 
Nagel? You're close. Do you know Todd? Yeah, it's Nerwin. Hubert Nerwin. Yeah. The same guy who designed the Contacts 2 and the Combat Greyflex right, also combat, designed right, right. also designed the 126 cassette. So Yeah. Yeah, and he, and he actually had some some cameras that didn't go into play that were kind of le- sort of led to that. Uh, we we have some some parts of those in the in the collection. So I have two more things I wanted to cover. You know, we talked a little earlier about Teague, Walter Dorwin Teague, and and rightfully he should be mentioned. You know, as an industrial designer, he did a lot of work beyond you know Kodak. You know, Raymond Late Late Levy. How do you say his last name? Raymond Levy. Lowy. Lowy. Raymond Lowy did the uh, a lot of stuff. You know, he did the Ansco Mark M. So a lot of these guys get credit for the designing, the cosmetics and and the look of the camera. But in my mind, a guy that doesn't get talked a lot about who I think had as big or, you know, as much of an innovation role was, was Joe Mihaly. Um, Joseph Mihaly actually designed the auto exposure system on the Kodak Super 620. He designed the shutter of the Ektra, that thing I was talking about earlier, that the split is variable. He he designed a lot of the Kodak Metalist. You know, there's not enough time to really talk about it, but on my website, my review for the Kodak Super 620, I talk quite a bit about Joe Mihaly. There's a book uh, made by Jerome Katz, who it's it's a really hard to find book, but if you can find it, it talks about Joe Mihaly. Uh, he interviewed him in the 70s before he passed away. And this guy, he bled yellow and or golden red you know i mean he just worked for kodak his entire life he was the guy he was the guy like the steve sasson that was put in a room and said with no direction just design stuff and he would keep thinking of things and a lot of the stuff this guy created never got made because it was too far ahead of its time you know and you can see correlations later on down the road with Kodak and some other companies where they were using some of the things invented by Joe Mihaly. Um, but I don't know why, but I don't hear his name mentioned nearly as often as, as Walter Teague, maybe because it's it's easier to talk about the looks of a camera than the insides of it. But um, I just wanted to throw that out there too. Yeah, he, he was one of, the, one of the best mechanical engineers they ever had. And, and again, it's 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 sort of like uh, playing golf in a way, you know, drive for show and putt for the dough. So basically the outside is what everybody sees. They don't see what's going on inside. Could I just, speaking of books, uh, besides your own book, Todd, could you maybe mention uh, maybe one or two other good history books about Kodak? Maybe what you could recommend? You mean besides Todd's? <laughs> That's what, That's what I said, besides Todd's. <laughs> Kodak books. Um, you, you know, it's it's sort of interesting when when we sat about or started talking about doing this book, we realized that there wasn't really that much competition out there that would that that kind of got into what we did. Uh, Kodak wise, Robert Shanebrook's book about their film. If you want to know about the film side of it, definitely yeah. get Robert Shanebrook's book. You can buy it directly from him, but he doesn't really get much into the cameras though. Yeah, he's just this film. He actually has a, a smaller kind of a pamphlet style than and the bigger one, How Kodak Film Was Made. Uh, yeah. Certainly that one. Uh, Brian, Brian Coe. Co. Not, not, well, Brian Coe's History of Kodak, which which sort of when you get into the eBay world, there's there's not in Co is 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 a uh, kind of a code name on that. So he he's he's uh, pretty well known. He also has a more of a general uh, history of photography book that's actually quite a bit better. This book was kind of it was kind of pressured to get it out for the hundredth anniversary, so it was 
Uh, there's some things in there that I think if he would have had a little more time would have been yeah. tuned up a little bit. But it's it's a good sized book, and there is a fairly decent intro telling you a little bit about the history. But I'd say eighty to eighty five percent of the book is more like a McCown's guide for for Kodak. You know, yeah. where it just it just lists model after model with maybe a paragraph or two about that model. So it doesn't, it's not, it's, it's more of a reference book with a small bit of history than a historical. It doesn't really give you kind of a, uh, a, a running narrative, if you would, no. which uh, I, I met him uh, once, maybe twice uh, when I first came to the museum and he, you know, he, he really didn't have time to do that. It was, it was kind of a, a project that was sort of pushed on him as I understand it. I, again, uh, Michael Pritchard has a couple of nice books on on cameras, not specifically Kodak, but but there's a few in there. Uh, I don't really know of anybody who who's really delved into it, other than just making lists of things. What is Paul Reibold holding up there? It's the Douglas Collins book, the uh, history of Kodak, or the the his, the story of Kodak. Story of Kodak, and it basically has very little to do with cameras. Yeah. It, okay. Uh, it's almost all history of uh, photography. And Kodak's role in the history of photography. I gotcha. But it, it's uh, it's one of the, one of my absolute favorite books. The Eastman Kodak uh, Stockhouse reps had a who seemed to be an endless supply of them at one time. So they were giving them to camera store dealers. I think I got a half a dozen of them, and I gave them all away except one. But it, it's probably one of the best history of photography books I've ever seen. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a pretty decent book. In 1939, Kodak released a pamphlet called Major Developments in New Apparatus. And this thing, you can I have a whole review of it on my website um, with scans, high resolution that I got from Charlie Cameraman. And uh, this thing is amazing. It shows a lot of cameras that Kodak was working on at the time. We talked about the, the Metalist. They actually were developing a motor drive for that and the Ektra. So there was going to be a motor drive for both those cameras. Um, they had a motor drive version of the Kodak 35. They had a 35 millimeter or 828. It's not clear, but they actually made a 35 millimeter version of the Ektra, a smaller, I'm sorry, of the uh, Metalist. Mm -hmm. So there was, a, there was originally going to be a smaller version of the Metalist, but there was also going to be a 620 version of the Ektra. So this pamphlet shows most of them are very low resolution black and white images, but you can at least see it. They show the Super Kodak 35, which became the Ektra. There was going to be an inexpensive 35 millimeter camera with a focal plane shutter they were developing, maybe as a cheap alternative to the Leica. But there's one prototype. And here's my question for Todd. I wonder if you know anything about this. It was TLR. And it doesn't really have a name other than 6x6 Reflex Kodak. But it's a twin lens camera, and it's got the same kind of optical field rangefinder like the, the Metalist does. It has interchangeable lens mount. So it was an interchangeable lens mount TLR. They made an optional metering system for it. It had a split image rangefinder and a waist level viewfinder. Do you know anything about this, Todd? I I, I don't. I, I I do know a little about about the design department, though. We we actually have some of the drawings and some images of of, of some of the things that that didn't happen. 1939 is really key because basically uh, they were aware of what was going on in Europe and what was going to happen. And I I think a lot of uh, foreshadowing as to where their business was going to go. So that yeah. it, it, in a way. Uh, if you look at their design department, they were always... They were trying everything. 
they were always, you know, basically working on designs that they're going to, and, and they, you know, I, yes, yes or no. So there was always this sort of stuff going on. A lot of this stuff basically got shelled because they had to uh, make things for the U.S. military. People don't realize the the involvement that Eastman Kodak Company had with, with the war effort. Yeah. Had that not happened, though, the number of crazy Kodak cameras would have increased dramatically. You know, like I said, yeah. there might have been a 35 millimeter medalist. There might have been a 620 Ektra. The TLR had a completely modular back. The entire back of the camera would come right. off like a magazine. So it could do roll film. It could do uh, sheet film. And it could even do 35 millimeter or 828 film too. So just imagine this modular Kodak camera with both a range finder, a waist level finder, interchangeable lenses, interchangeable backs, a meter... I mean, it's crazy, you know, so it's like, man, if if a prototype of that camera, because it looks like it was made. I mean, there's actually a picture. Oh, yeah, they, they, they usually would make make a few examples. We we have a, a stereo retina in the collection and it's 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 oh, like wow. a full size 2436 stereo okay. retina. Only front. There's one of those. We have it in the collection. We do have a Super Kodak 35 in the collection. Uh, we have two of a camera called the Technar, which was if you take the Recomar 33 and make it in the U.S. and put a roll film back on it, you know, it's basically if you wow. ever saw the, the, the baby speed graphic, it's kind of like that. Really impressive lenses on it. Uh, we have two of those. So th there were there were lots of things. That, that they worked on, that they decided for whatever reason, whether it was financial, whether it was the war, whether it was the salespeople said it's not going to go, that got voted down. So there, there was a lot of these things floating around in there. Well, Todd, if that twin lens prototype ever shows up, please call me. <laughs> I've actually personally handled three different Super Kodak 35 prototypes. Um, I've written about those as well. I had them all at the same time, actually. So to have a single image with three prototypes and them side by side by side, I think was kind of special. And and well, I'm a sucker. Like, I'll, I'll send you a picture of it tomorrow. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, pretty pretty neat stuff. When I say we have just an amazing collection of things, I, I do encourage people to come and visit the museum. You just be blown away at the stuff that we have. If you make an appointment, I'd be happy to show you the collection. Too, Very so. cool. I will say that uh, as far as like the George Eastman Museum, probably one of the most pivotal moments in my development as a photographer was that in 1989, I was able to go to the Art Institute of Chicago and see an exhibit that the Eastman House, the Eastman Museum had put together called The Art of Fixing the Shadow. Mm -hmm. And it was at the time probably the most comprehensive public museum display of the history of photography, uh, starting with you know Daguerre and going through uh, early digital prints. And uh, I probably spent three days at the Art Institute just to take that all in. And, you know, in that way, the work of the Eastman House was easily as important as any camera that I ever had from Kodak, as far as completely turning my head around about what was possible with photography and what I wanted to do with my own photography. And to kind of, kind of amplify that, the, the collection across the hall from, from my office is where the Department of Photography is. They've, they've got somewhere in the vicinity of three quarters of a million photographs in that collection. So, and, and again, it's, it really is the entire soup to nuts history of photography. Uh, just an amazing collection. There's really nothing like it in the world. So uh, just unbelievable stuff. I'll nominate one more very under the radar camera that I actually had a lot of fun with shooting. If you're willing to try 127, film you can still buy it new people will respool it all the time uh they made a, a brownie super 27 which this thing looks like a pocket projector 
It's a small little rectangular camera with a huge viewfinder. Uh, it's scale focused. It's very basic. It has two shutter speeds. It has two separate, like, it's not really an aperture, but you have two different exposure settings. So between the two shutter speeds and the two exposure settings, you have the equivalent of four potential uh, settings for exposure. Huge shutter release on the top. It's just a fun camera to use. And uh, it's it's a two element glass lens. So, I mean, it actually makes pretty good pictures. So um, this is a fun camera that I really, really like shooting. I wrote a review of it on my site, but it is 127. So, you know, that kind of limits some people. Well, of but, course, um, 127, there's always, you know, best pocket Kodak. How far wrong can you go? I mean, it's, I think it's, yeah. it's one of the best cameras that was ever manufactured. In fact, I, you know, I, I mounted the a best pocket Kodak meniscus lens on my digital camera. It's just, it's an unbe unbelievable lens. Paul Barton, uh, it looks like you switched your phone. Uh, any closing comments or anything you want to tell people? Well, I, I assume you're probably going to put up a URL uh, for yes. uh, my contact information. Just let people know that um, if they have a Kodak Retina up to, but not including the reflexes, uh, I'm happy to service them for them and uh, get them up and running. So do you have a flat rate for service or do you have people send them to you first and then you give them once over and then quote a price? It's mostly a flat rate with caveat. Um, you know, I do mention that uh, there are specific problems with some of the models that uh, crop up fairly often. And if, for example, the, the 3C, 2C types that have the brass caulking rack, um, I do mention the fact that that is something that may or may not need, need uh, replacement. And that can be expensive, sure. but um, for the most part, it's a, a flat rate. Early models up to the 010 are 135 to service, and the later models are 165 plus return shipping and parts if necessary. Well, and, and nothing against Chris at all, but me being in the United States and him in New Zealand, shipping was, was expensive back and forth. So you're in Portland. It was. It's much more reasonable for those of us in the U.S. to get stuff to you. So do you um, offer any education on like how to use the camera before sending it back just in case somebody... Um, is not familiar with the Kodak Retina's quirks? Well, I watch for cues in the correspondence that I have with customers. And if there are hints that they may not know exactly how to use their camera, I will tend to forward them to Mike Butkus's um, website with all of the camera manuals and yeah. point them to the specific manual for their camera and say, take a look at this, uh, give yeah. it a once over. If you have any questions about what you've read, then ask me. So that's kind of where that goes. A good tip for using a Kodak Retina, if you've never used one before, besides reading Mike Butkus' site, is that the exposure counter, um, when it reaches one on most models, if not all of them, the shutter release will stop working. So people will yep. incorrectly assume the camera's jammed or broken or inoperable, when in reality, you just got to reset the frame counter. You'd be surprised how many listings on eBay say camera doesn't work and you see the right. photograph at one. the top of the camera and it shows the frame counter on one and I go, right. oh yeah, I know what's happening here. There, the thought process I read was that Kodak thought that by the time you got to one, they wanted you to not tear the film out of the cassette. So they've prohibited right. you from going beyond that when in reality it would just, I think, throw people off. But that was just the 
the German way of thinking. I think it had the advantage that it actually gave you some uh, some feedback as to how much of your film you had left, right. which is useful as well. Sure. The whole lock thing was what seemed kind of arbitrary. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Paul. Um, we have been corresponding back and forth for a while. I'm glad to have you. You're welcome anytime. Uh, we do not have to have a Kodak-centric show for any of you guys to join. Uh, that includes Richard. That includes you, uh, Todd. We had a couple people come and go. Uh, Mark Faulkner has been here this entire time. Eve's dropping on us. He's the fly on the wall. Uh, how's it going there, Mark? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I was gonna, uh, my whole collection started with a Retina 126. So I'm always, always love the uh, the Retina cameras. Yeah, I, I can't imagine somebody wouldn't love them because they're, they're, they're just great to use. All right. Well, thanks everybody for coming on the show. This is a great discussion. Uh, like a lot of brands, it's difficult to fit in everything we possibly could talk about, especially a company with so much history like Eastman Kodak. Uh, there's a lot more to the story. If you enjoyed this discussion on this show, look back to some of our previous episodes. Like I mentioned earlier, the Steve Sasson episode where we talked about how the digital camera was actually created at Kodak. Uh, Todd actually appears on that episode. We've spoken to Robert Shanebrook a couple times and his first episode that he came on, he goes into detail about why Kodachrome will never be made again, why they can't make IR film anymore. He explains what T-grain means, um, which I, I never really understood before talking to him. So um, as this show it, it goes along, we, we jump in and out of specific topics in certain episodes. So you never know what we're going to talk about. We don't have anything planned uh, for a topic for our next episode. So stay tuned for a future show announcement for episode 52 as always the topics and discussions on the camera city podcast are decided upon you our anniversary episode we had no idea we'd spend as much time talking about polaroid and nikon but i'm glad we did because that show i thought was great we have a lot of great feedback on it um we never know and sometimes those unplanned conversations turn out to be the best discussion so uh, thank you guys for coming. I hope everybody has a great night, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Good night. Good night, Good night everybody. Good night. All right. Good night. Bye -bye. Good night. been kind of a busy time at the museum. The PGA Championship was held at Oak Hill in Rochester, which is a, a golf course that the land was actually purchased for the University of Rochester by George Eastman. It's on Kilbourne uh, Drive, which was uh, Eastman's mother's maiden name. So basically, he, he purchased uh, the land so they could build a golf course there, although I think it was going to be the university. And uh, so CBS did a kind of a nice spot uh, at the beginning of the tour tourney or the play on Saturday, other than it was raining like crazy, they gave us like two pretty good spots. So maybe three minutes total. And I think they estimated two and a half million people probably saw it. So they, they showed a little bit of the house and talked a little bit about Mr. Eastman. And then they also did kind of a, a nerdy segment on, on photos in the darkroom. So we had some of our staff uh, working in, in one of our labs, which is kind of neat. So